I read this book as a kind of elegy. It's quite elegiac. It's a sad, sad book. It is. Although, I mean, you say, like, how do you then explain this very last bit? The morning weighs on my shoulders with the dreadful weight of hope. I remember reading it at that and thinking, like, what, what hopeful thing could be on the horizon for him? But then I wonder if that's just another testament to the human spirit, even in the worst could situations. Be. It could it's, be, yeah. I mean, One other ingredient could be self-knowledge. That's a good point. It's, it, I think it is important enough to base some hope on. He's willing to admit to himself that he's gay. Right. And that would feel like hope. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about James Baldwin's novel, Giovanni's Room. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you a just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you make the conflict in your novel more focused. Today's quote is from James Baldwin. He once wrote, You write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it, and if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. I love his focus here on perception. Novels really do change the way that people see the world, even if only slightly. But if you pile enough of those experiences together, you could really alter a person's perception of the world. And before you know it, the world itself could be changed for the better. And for more about a book that can certainly change the way you see the world, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. Well, hello. Hi. Claire Akerbrand. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> author of... Don't do it. What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems, and The Field of White. <laughs> <laughs> the Field is White. That would have been nice, too. Which is a novel. Uh, we're reading Giovanni's Room this week, which is I don't know, a semi-random choice. Strange book to read over Christmas. Yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere. We're not really doing these thematically, but we're both extremely glad to have read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is how the book starts. I stand at the window of this great house in the south of France as night falls, the night which is leading me to the most terrible morning of my life. I have a drink in my hand. There is a bottle at my elbow. I watch my reflection in the darkening gleam of the window pane. My reflection is tall, perhaps rather like an arrow. My blonde hair gleams. My face is like a face you have seen many times. My ancestors conquered a continent, pushing across death-laden plains until they came to an ocean which faced away from Europe into a darker past. So, Claire, what is this book about? It's about a young American named David who is unsure about his sexuality. He moves to France, lives in Paris, and um, he suspects that he maybe prefers men, but then he meets a woman and becomes pretty close to her. And he's never really sure if he loves her, but... And then she moves to Spain for a little while, and it's not quite clear why she does. He says that she needs some time to think or maybe to figure out how she feels about him. He meets a man named Giovanni in a bar, and they have an instant connection. 
for some reason he resists it. Anyway, so um, he moves in with Giovanni. They basically fall in love on the spot. Become sort of strangely inseparable for a little while while Hella's away. His relationship with Giovanni is fractious. Yeah. Troubled. Right. Giovanni is much more eager to give himself to the relationship than um, David is. David definitely can't get himself to really commit. Some part of him feels like it's wrong. Which is the main tension of the novel. David not wanting to admit to himself that he's gay. Yeah. We read this on page five, so this is not a spoiler. The narrator, David, says this, People are too various to be treated so lightly. I am too various to be trusted. If this were not so, I would not be alone in this house tonight. Hello would not be on the high seas. And Giovanni would not be about to perish sometime between this night and this morning on the guillotine. So we're told at the very beginning of the novel that he's, he's been sentenced to death, to die by guillotine, especially horrible method of execution. Yeah. He's been charged with this horrible crime. We don't find out till, until the very end, basically, what exactly happened. That and even, yeah, yeah, that it's murder. Yeah. Uh, first question, stylistically, why tell this novel as a kind of giant flashback? What do you think is the purpose of that structure to start at the end, almost at the very end? This is the last night of Giovanni's life. The book is mostly about romantic relationships. And I feel like in romantic relationships, so much of it is looking back mm. and living in the past. Right. It's kind of reconstructed. While you're living it, it's complex and irreducible to a single narrative or a single thing. But mm. you know, we do have this need to tell ourselves stories about our own past, mm -hmm. to make them coherent, to make them comprehensible. Right. It's as if he didn't realize as it was happening, as he was living with Giovanni in this small, dirty apartment, how much he loved him mm -hmm. until he looked back. And that's often how it is. You never really know how you feel about people until either something terrible is about to happen, you've been separated, or until time has passed and you're looking back. At the end of the story, which is the beginning of the novel, yeah. he's alone in this house. Hella has left him and is sailing back to America. Mm -hmm. He's thinking about Giovanni's last night on Earth, and he's thinking about Hella. And he says this, And these nights were being acted out under a foreign sky with no one to watch, no penalties attached. It was this last fact which was our undoing. For nothing is more unbearable, once one has it, than freedom. I suppose this was why I asked her to marry me, to give myself something to be moored to. Perhaps this was why in Spain she decided that she wanted to marry me. But people can't unhappily invent their mooring posts their lovers, and their friends, any more than they can invent their parents. Life gives these and also takes them away, and the great difficulty is to say yes to life. That's a really good passage. I find this a key and beautiful passage. It introduces, I think, all of the struggles and ideas and themes that the novel will address. Yeah. We cannot choose our mooring posts. We cannot choose what will give us peace and serenity and safety. We can't choose who we love. Mm -hmm. We can't choose our parents. Life simply gives us to these. We're just simply thrown into them. That's so good. Um, and the great difficulty isn't to change them, but to simply accept them and to say, yes, I will, I will live the life that has been given to me. Mm -hmm. And he calls this the great struggle. So this is not easy. No. And I think it is David's great struggle. 
Right. It's not as easy as just saying, okay, I'm gay. I'm going to live with this man. I mean, because in other parts of the book, he, he longs for structure. He longs for tradition. He wants a wife and children. And he wants to be that man that his dad wants him to be. So he's really conflicted. I think yeah. it's more complicated than just uh, a matter of am I gay or straight or bisexual. He he has really conflicting desires. Well, I mean, set in the 50s, America in the 50s was a much different place than it is now. Now, I mean, lots of progress has been made. It was so, a crime to be gay. It was literally a crime to in be gay America. in the 50s. I'm not sure this novel could exist in the same way now. I'm not saying that life is perfect and that society has been perfected, but it was literally a crime. And there was only one version of an acceptable life in the 50s in America. Mm. Get a job, get a wife, get kids. But I also felt like he longed for those things sometimes, not just because society told him that's what he should have. Well, let's get into that, but slightly slowly. Okay, sure. So he he introduces this novel with this assertion that the great struggle is to say yes to life, mm. not to change it, but to accept it as is. But what does that mean if you're a man in the United States, in America, in the 1950s? Right. His dad, how would you describe his dad? Oh, he seems to genuinely love his son, but he is absent and busy with his own life and going out and meeting women and always drunk yeah yeah carousing he's not cruel to him per se he doesn't beat him beat him or anything like that but yeah he, his no, cruelty he's, is in his absentness his absentness and his domineeringness and so he has his mother david's mother has passed away so he's being raised by this dad and his aunt ellen yeah. his father's sister and his father and his aunt have this interesting exchange his father says this, and listen, said my father suddenly from the middle of the staircase in a voice which frightened me. All I want for David is that he grow up to be a man. And when I say a man, Ellen, I don't mean a Sunday school teacher. Right. And then Ellen responds by saying, a man is not the same thing as a bull. I think his father is a bull, you know, like, yeah, he's that's bullish. What I, that's what I meant. Like, he wants him to... Go out and be with as many women as he can. What's the difference between a man and a Sunday school teacher? <laughs> it sounds like the setup of a joke. <laughs> well, he seems to think that uh, a Sunday school teacher is in some way weak or, yeah, he denies himself mm. pleasures right. and enjoyment. But to be a man is to be... Act on your impulses. Is to act on impulse, to be strong-willed, to be aggressive when you need to be aggressive. Yeah. To eschew piety. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the kind of comment that David hears growing up. And for all David knows, you know, his dad is the authority on masculinity. Mm. And this is, of course, reinforced by the society around him. So as far as David knows, there is only one way to be a man. David is struggling to say yes there's a difference between the life that that society says you must live and the life that David is beginning to feel that he wants to live. Mm-hmm. One key question of the book is, what what does it mean to be a man? Is that a boring question to you as a woman? I mean, it's quite a masculine book, so I'm curious to know how you responded as a woman, both to the male characters and, and the female characters. Was there anything personal to you about this book, personally relevant to you about this book? 
Yeah, I mean, I absolutely related to this book. I think in every way, uh, you know, insofar as I'm also human, who is various, as he yeah. says there in the beginning. We're all too complicated to just be defined by our genders or even our sexuality or our beliefs, you know. And uh, we all have that in common. I think we all know what it's like to not feel like we completely fit right. within whatever mold society gives us. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, my dad was the best dad in the world. He was a kind of jock, played football in college, was actually recruited to the Canadian Football League. I had zero interest in sports. So the relationship between David and his father is a kind of negative and extreme version of of how I saw myself and my dad. Mm. It could have gone like this relationship did in the book, horribly wrong. Luckily, my dad was you know, not a drunk or a carouser mm. and extremely supportive. But I did feel like you know, I, I, was, I only had an interest in reading books, started to write poetry, mm-hmm. played zero sports. And I, yeah, I think every child, every teenager, every adult, as you say, this is true, has to find his or her own way in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, that that will always involve not meeting someone's expectations, even if those people are extremely kind. You know, so yeah. even in a best case scenario like me, like it, it's it's slightly nerve wracking mm-hmm. to ask yourself, "Who am I?" Yeah, and I'm slightly different from what maybe they think I should be or what they were when they were my age. Yeah, and to gently, tentatively, nervously assert. Something, as you say, which might defy their expectations. No, I'm actually like this. You know, mm-hmm. the great struggle is to say yes to life. Like, of course, it's much easier it's, for us these days, you know. Yes, and of course, it's easier for some of the characters in this book than for others. For Hella and David, it was much easier to say yes to, you know, whatever relationship was beginning to bloom. While for David and Giovanni, they were confined to this dirty, dingy apartment. Right. And even though France was more open-minded than American, it was not a crime in France, right? Right. It, society still looked down on homosexuality, so... Well, it does. I think David carries his homeland with him. Yeah. You know, I think it's this repression, this kind of stig- stigma against homosexuality, it, it's been so ingrained in him that I think he's mostly terrified to admit to himself that he's gay. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously, of course, terrified to admit it to his father, and he never really does, but... He believes this version of masculinity that his father and his society have given to him. Mm-hmm. Hella comes back eventually from Spain and they reunite and he eventually leaves Giovanni and starts spending more time with Hella again. And he thinks to himself this, Yet it was true, I recalled, turning away from the river down the long street home. I wanted children. I wanted to be inside again with the light and safety, with my manhood unquestioned, watching my woman put my children to bed. I wanted the same bed at night and the same arms, and I wanted to rise in the morning knowing where I was. I wanted a woman to be for me a steady ground, like the earth itself, where I could always be renewed. It had been so once. It had almost been so once. I could make it so again. I could make it real. It only demanded a short, hard strength for me to become myself again. I think that's about more than just... Sexuality, I think, I think it's about um, a sort of identity crisis. He doesn't quite know what he is, who he is, uh, what he wants to be. I th- it seems like there were moments where he genuinely 
liked slash loved Hella. Same as with Giovanni. There were times when he knew he loved him, other times when he wasn't sure. I think most of the tension in the novel, actually, it seems like is an identity crisis. And I don't mean like whether he's gay or not, but just I think he's unsettled by the fact that he doesn't know what he wants and where he belongs. I think it's so much easier to choose a mold, a societal mold, and just settle into it. You know what I mean? I think he longs for that, just some structure. He just doesn't know where he belongs. I think this question, I think, like you say, everybody questions their identity. Mm-hmm. But I think when I when I say that I'm not sure this story could exist in the 21st century, I mean, I think this question is much more complicated and confused for him than it would be for a character in 2020. He doesn't more is at stake for sure. Well, there's no external validation from society telling him. I mean, in 1950s in America, there is one life. There is one acceptable life. Yeah. In 2020 in America, there are many acceptable lives, mm-hmm. many acceptable ways to live. Right. So he didn't have anybody giving him other options. For him, the menu was limited to a life of one type. Yeah. So for me, when I hear him say, I wanted my masculinity unquestioned. What this can only mean for him because of his time and place is a wife and kids. Yeah. That's what it means in 1950s to have your masculinity unquestioned. Mm. Whereas now you can have your masculinity unquestioned in many different ways. That's true. So it's society that actually I was thinking about this book and our previous chat about Jane Austen, her novel persuasion. I'll see if I can, get my memory straight here to do this. But if I recall, you and I talked in that book about how there are many traditions that are good. There are many aspects of society which are good and lead to happiness. Mm -hmm. There are many reasons why it's important to listen to and follow the advice of your parents or your trusted elders. Mm -hmm. And that bucking the trend for the sake of bucking the trend usually leads to unhappiness. Mm -hmm. Even Anne Elliot at the end of that novel admits, like, I wasn't wrong to follow Lady Russell's advice. Mm -hmm. The older generation usually does know more than the younger one. Mm -hmm. And that wisdom is something that needs to be trusted. Mm -hmm. This novel offers a true kind of counterpoint. There are many aspects of societies that are not wise, you know, that are harmful and need to be not just mistrusted, but reformed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. David is living in such a society. I think David wants a stable, happy life. Yeah. His his society is only letting him imagine one version of that. Mm-hmm. Wife and kids. I don't actually think he's attracted to women. I mean, he the more time he spends with Hella, the more unattracted to her he becomes. There's That's even that, that one moment where he returns to Giovanni. This is late in their relationship. and They've already fallen out. and mm-hmm. He's only going back to collect his stuff. And I don't think I'll be able to find it. But he says in a single sentence something like... Um, even the sight of Giovanni awakened in me a kind of surprising lust, and yet at the same time an immense nausea or something. I wanted to vomit. I think the word is vomit. Mm-hmm. That's an almost exact quote, slight paraphrase. And he's kind of always and instantly attracted to Giovanni, but not really to Hella. Yeah. It's not an interesting question, is he gay or bisexual? This is not an interesting question. Yeah. The question Which, Right. A much more interesting question is what is the cause of this immense and prolonged internal struggle? One reason that he has the struggle is that 
seemingly all his life he's been surrounded by people who live these sort of dirty lives. Right. Like his father, he keeps getting drunk and yeah. sleeping with all kinds of people. And um, there's not really a structure there, not really a family structure. And then when he goes to France, the few people that he meets that, you know, in that bar where Giovanni works, who are openly gay, well, openly gay in the bar, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're all really... Yeah, sort of horrible people. Horrible people. Older men who are just bitter and jealous and forceful and yeah, manipulating younger men into having sex with them. Yeah, and he has this tiny little room that he shares with Giovanni, and I, I love this title. It's it becomes a sort of symbol for what kind of spaces were available to right. gay men at the time. Yeah, this. This single tiny little room is becomes a kind of horrible prison, a kind of hell that they're trapped in. Yeah, it's 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 really heartbreaking. They keep Giovanni keeps trying to like kind of fix it up. He keeps having dreams of uh, renovating, but of course they don't have the resources. There's just not enough space, mm-hmm. <laughs> and things just keep piling up. And they they so badly want structure. They so badly want this clean life, clean whatever that means. I don't know what what do you make of all the images of dirt and filth in the book. Well, before before I answer that, I'll just say in contrast to this prison room with Giovanni, he he rents this house in the south of France with Hella. So it's this house; it's not just a single room. Right. They have this whole house together, but it's a kind of charade of a house because they don't really love each other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So symbolically, these these two dwellings are contrasted in a way. Yeah. He, he, I think he does love Giovanni. I think Giovanni does love him. Of course, David doesn't always know that. No, but because their society is like this prison room, you know, that they've been locked into this room. It's too small to see things clearly. What do I make about the images of filth? Well, there is a kind of religious motif running through this book. I don't know how or if this will answer your question, but I found this passage extremely interesting. So one of the older men that he meets in these gay bars is named Jacques, and uh Jacques once says to David, the narrator, nobody can stay in the Garden of Eden. And then he adds, I wonder why. And then this is what the narrator says about Jacques' comment. I have thought about Jacques' question since. The question is banal, but one of the real troubles with living is that living is so banal. Everyone, after all, goes the same dark road, and the road has a trick of being most dark, most treacherous when it seems most bright. And it's true that nobody stays in the Garden of Eden. Jacques' garden was not the same as Giovanni's, of course. Skipping a few lines, perhaps everybody has a garden of Eden, I don't know, but they have scarcely seen their garden before they see the flaming sword. Then perhaps life only offers the choice of remembering the garden or forgetting it. Either or. It takes strength to remember. It takes another kind of strength to forget. It takes a hero to do both. People who remember court madness through pain the pain of the perpetually recurring death of their innocence. People who forget court another kind of madness, the madness of the denial of pain and the hatred of innocence. And the world is mostly divided between madmen who remember and madmen who forget. Heroes are rare. I found this so beautiful Mm. and so true. That's the trick of consciousness. That's the trick of that. That summarizes so well for me the human predicament, you know? We have this 
maybe it's a memory, maybe it's just a potential to imagine a perfect place, mm. Eden. Whether that what, could be the innocence of childhood. Yeah, I mean, like he says, there are many different kinds of Eden, but it's a, it's a dwelling place of perfection. Mm-hmm. It's an ideal place. To forget this place is to make one kind of mistake, and to remember it is to make another kind of mistake. Mm. You know, to forget this place means that you live without hope, without aspiration, without reason to improve your own condition, without motivation to aspire. But to remember this place means that you're constantly made aware of your own present fallen condition. Right. So he is absolutely right. This is like my, I'll never forget this. This is my favorite takeaway from the book. A hero is a person who can remember and forget at the same time. And such people are extremely rare. So filth, I mean, does that get to this question of filth? I mean, I think there's this notion of original sin, right? It's like, what counts as a sin? What counts as a moral failing? What should a man do? Well, he shouldn't sleep with other men, thinks David. That's Mm -hmm. what David thinks. Certainly what David's father thinks. So he carries with him this ingrained, deeply ingrained, prejudice against his own desires. Oh, yeah. Perfect recipe for an identity crisis. Yeah, and perhaps he needs to reimagine what Eden could be. So do you think that Giovanni's room is a um, place that they're trying to turn into Eden, but they don't know how? I think your analysis is the best. It is a symbol. I don't like the word symbol, but it does represent society, right? There's no house or room in the world at that time. There's no space for them. There's no space for them. Yeah. It's not just that the room is small. It's not just that it's messy. It's that the beliefs, the moral beliefs and opinions of their society are small and messy Mm. and do not have room to accommodate couples like David and Giovanni. You said earlier that this book is was a you know very different than you know what what life is like in America now, but I think in many ways it's still it's really difficult as a as a gay person to try well, to fit in. No doubt. I mean, one has to keep it, the progress in mind. Gay marriage is legal, you know, across the entire country, which is not nothing. No, you're right. It's prejudice, you know, still exists. Mm-hmm. I I thought it was really interesting when David later on had this uh, one night stand with Sue. Yeah, and um, which was clearly clearly. I mean, I read it clearly as an attempt, David's last attempt to convince himself that he's straight. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty standard sort of one night stand in which people are mostly um, kind of disillusioned. But I thought it was interesting that he said he didn't feel like this night with Sue was in any way cleaner than any sort of night he'd spent with Giovanni. And in fact, I think he says it felt dirtier. Well, it's almost prostitution. I mean, he basically has to pay her. Yeah. Bribe her. Right, he talks her into it. So love, I mean, the romantic relationships in this book are ruinous from... From beginning to end, mm-hmm. the straight ones and the gay ones. Yeah, don't you feel like he's making the argument that in so many romantic relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is, that there's always the potential for a kind of filth, by which I mean um, insincerity or lies or pretense. I feel like the filth in this book is sort of equated with um, dishonesty. With Giovanni and David, too, because uh, David cannot be completely honest with Giovanni. He can't say, look, I love you. I don't know how to 
fully commit myself to commit myself to this relationship. So I'm pretending like I have feelings for Hella, which you know what I mean? And Giovanni often says that you lie, you're dishonest, etc. etc. There's no author there's no authority in this book. I was about to say that there's no good male role model. There is then which is true. There is no good male role model. That's true. That's true, yeah. David's father is a horrible role model, so is Jacques, this kind of older man they befriend in Paris. And the women, too. Hella seems kind yeah, of... Yeah, but it, to say there's no good yeah. male role model is only a symptom of a large... But there's no no one... There's no authority. There's no source of wisdom. There's no older person who has learned how to live. There's no one for these people to turn to and, and say, give me wisdom. Tell me how to live. Mm-hmm. No, I think Giovanni is extremely juvenile. He, he's one of those people that says, if you leave me, I will commit suicide. I mean, he straight up says that to David. True. So it's a kind of hostage taking. He's taking himself hostage. Yeah, that's you know true. What I mean? This is not a way to behave in a relationship. Right. And one mustn't forget that he did kill somebody. And then he goes and commits murder himself. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for Giovanni, though, especially there's this hor- horrifying, horribly sad passage about his baby dying. He, ha- um. he has a wife. So he's from Italy. He's an immigrant to France. And before he comes to France, he has this life. He meets this woman. They have this child. The baby dies. So Giovanni, you know, it's kind of his attempt at becoming a father. His uh, attempt at structure and honoring tradition. And he says this, I remember the sun was hot and scratchy on the back of my neck as I walked the road away from my village, and the road went upward and I walked bent over. I remember everything, the brown dust at my feet and the little pebbles which rushed before me and the short trees along the road and all the flat houses and all their colors under the sun. I remember I was weeping but not as I am weeping now, much worse, more terrible. That was the first time in my life that I wanted to die. I had just buried my baby in the churchyard where my father and my father's father were, and I had left my girl screaming in my mother's house. Yes, I had made a baby, but it was born dead. It was all gray and twisted when I saw it, and it made no sound. We spanked it on the buttocks, and we sprinkled it with holy water, and we prayed, but it never made a sound. It was dead. It was a little boy. It would have been a wonderful, strong man, but it was dead. It was my baby, and we had made it, my girl and I, and it was dead. When I knew that it was dead, I took our crucifix off the wall, and I spat on it, and I threw it on the floor, and my mother and my girl screamed, and I went out. We buried it right away the next day, and then I left my village, and I came to the city where surely God has punished me for all my sins, and for spitting on his holy son, and where I will surely die. I do not think that I will ever see my village again. It's evocative of so much, you know, the theme of father and son that we've touched on. Mm-hmm. This kind of stillborn child is a is an embodiment of Giovanni's failed attempt to live the life that his society said he should live. I know, it's such a slap in the face. He is uh, trying to follow tradition. Right. And what he gets in return is heartbreak. That's right. So he spits on the cross. So again, religion comes into it. He, 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 he goes to France thinking that God has now cursed him for this act of blasphemy. Living, so he's now living like he's a condemned man already, you know, kind of doomed to die already, mm. which is a dangerous way to live. So nobody, I think everybody is too dependent on their romantic partner. I mean, one question that this book raises for me is how dependent should one be on one's romantic partner yeah that's a good question especially with that quote you read at the beginning where we don't choose our more posts mooring posts i mean 
Well, should a romantic partner be a mooring post? This is a good question. I mean, in a way, yes, but in a way, no. Right. Well, it's like he says, we don't choose them. We kind of um, fall into these situations where we feel moored to another person. But maybe that's a key, the key moment where we need to step back and say, I can't depend on this one person. I have to have my own separate identity. And I can't have this person be so dependent on me. Right. We cannot be give uh, pressure each other in that way. Yeah, like if I die or leave, so both partners need to, I mean, I'm speaking of this, I mean, like I say, what do I know about <laughs> successful romance? Going on 12 years, so I guess I know, I guess I know a tiny bit, but I, I feel probably more dependent on you than I should. I don't know. Well, yeah. yeah maybe it's, it's a stupid thing to say, but. Well, it's like he said, we don't choose our mooring posts, but. But there's two questions in that. Yeah. Yeah, don't, we don't choose who we fall in love with, but how mooring of a mooring post should our loved ones be? Do we want them as mooring posts? Do you, Claire Akebrand, like the idea that you are my mooring post? <laughs> that without you, I will unravel and go insane and die? No. <laughs> you don't like, right? I mean, nobody likes feeling so responsible for another person's life. To young love, it might seem romantic, but yeah. I don't think that, I don't, I don't, yeah, I just don't it's know. Like, it's like with Giovanni and David. He, David soon realizes in this tiny apartment that this clinging to each other, like life raft, it's it's stressful and well, it's <laughs> extremely... Destructive. It's destructive. Yeah. So I don't think mooring post is the right way to approach a loved one. No. But then again, you you I do think... want to you do want to offer a, a safe harbor, you know, in, yeah. in the storms of life to the people that you love. I think this is all, of course, my extremely limited experience. But ideally, you need to be a, you need to be your own mooring post. And then the love that you show for your beloved is a gift, you know? And you say, my psychological health does not depend on you. Mm -hmm. And I'm giving you my love not as like a bartering tool to get something out of you so that you won't leave me, but just because I genuinely want the best for you. I want the best for you. It has not really anything to do with me or my stability. Like what David says about, like, I wanted a woman to be my sure foundation under me. Mm-hmm. Which is way too much pressure for a woman, too. That marriage is doomed to fail. Yeah. Can we shift topics here and talk about America? Okay. Neither of us are American. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. That's right. I totally forgot. You've been American for about seven months, six months. Yeah, seems like an eternity. <laughs> um, but you were not born or raised in this country. No. I spent all of my developing years in Canada, quite similar to America, so I, I consider myself less of an outsider than you. Yeah, I was born in Sweden and grew up in Germany, lived there until I was 14. Some questions about the way that this novel thinks about America. So when one of the first conversations between David and Giovanni goes like this, David says, I like New York too, but New York is very beautiful in a different way. Giovanni frowned. In what way? No one, I said, who has ever seen it can possibly imagine it. It's very high and new and electric, exciting, I paused. It's hard to describe. It's very 20th century. Giovanni says, you find that Paris is not of this century? His smile made me feel a little foolish. Well, I said, Paris is old, is many centuries. You feel in Paris all the time gone by. That isn't what you feel in New York. 
I stopped. What do you feel in New York? He asked. Perhaps you feel, I told him, all the time to come. There's such power there. Everything is in such movement. And then on the next page, there's this paragraph. Giovanni placed himself before me again and began wiping the bar with a damp cloth. The Americans are funny. You have a funny sense of time. Or perhaps you have no sense of time at all. I can't tell. Time always sounds like a parade, like armies with banners entering a town, as though with enough time, and that would not need to be so very much for Americans, with enough time and with all that fearful energy and virtue you people have, everything will be settled, solved, put in place. And when I say everything, he added grimly, I mean all the serious, dreadful things, like pain and death and love, in which you Americans do not believe. So, your experience coming to this country as a teenager, do Americans have a different concept of time? This is Giovanni's hypothesis. Well, that's a really hard question, but one thing I noticed is when I moved to Utah that, for example, in the architecture, it certainly seems like Americans were looking not far enough ahead into the future. Um, things were things are built not really to last, and there's a very practical approach to time in that way. It's like, well, this only needs to last a few years, and then something new will be built, and things will be renovated. Um, it's as if there's only the present. Right. So, yeah, there there was a weird sense of, yeah, that's very interesting, actually, I'm just realizing uh, that I did have a similar experience as Giovanni, um, that I felt that there was no sense of time, really, in Utah. Oh, and plus, America's not very old, so there's barely any past. Right. And in a way, they'd have to look forward. <laughs> I think they do look forward, but I think you're also right to say that they don't really look forward. Yeah. They imagine, like, I think, yeah, David, like, what could the city be 100 years from now? But they don't, I don't know. There is something permanently in the present moment in this country. Very utilitarian. I mean, Canada, too. I, I shouldn't pretend Canada is very much different. It's yeah. not really in this regard. Um, there's, no, there's no historical sense. There's not enough of a historical sense, mm -hmm. and therefore not enough of a future tense. Mm -hmm. Like what we do right now has a direct effect on what life is like 100 years from now. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's a sl slightly foreign thought? A thousand exceptions can be found, I'm sure, but... Yeah, well... Slightly foreign thought to... This culture at this time. Yeah. Even with uh, the idea of, um, <laughs> not to get too political, but global warming. Well, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, I like your example of architecture. Like, a strip mall serves the purpose. Yeah. Why do we need something? I mean, there are economic reasons, of course, that I'm too ignorant to know anything about or go into. But there's, there's, no, there's no sense of, like, we are building this for a hundred years from now. Exactly. Like I say, with... Certain exceptions, of course. Yes. Is timeless, is this sense of timelessness, I like Giovanni's metaphor of this parade, like time for an American is just like all there, it's one present parade. Mm. Is this good or bad, this sense of timelessness or the sense of an eternal present? Giovanni asserts that Americans seem to have this attitude that, you know, eventually in this parade, everything will be put right. But part two of this novel begins like this. I remember that life in that room seemed to be occurring beneath the sea. Time flowed past indifferently above us. Hours and days had no meaning. So it's like part of the prison of this room is its sense of 
time put on pause. Time stood still, which is a kind of curse. Yeah, they're in a kind of uh, weird limbo. It sounds romantic that time stood still, but it certainly turns out to be a sort of nightmare for these two men. This, this will be a good way to transition to the very end. Maybe one reason why David knows that a wife and children would be more stable. Mm-hmm. And one reason why Giovanni mourns the loss of his son. I like that detail about the son was buried in the same graveyard as his father and his father's father. Mm-hmm. And David's father says, I want him to be a man. You know, like there's mm-hmm. this sense of inheritance or tradition or lineage. Yeah. Lineage becomes a kind of motif. So does you know, the natural progression of a human life that's supposed to begin and end. Yeah, like in the beginning where he says you would see a man, the face, like he, many other faces you've seen. and uh, That's right. It's in the very first paragraph. My ancestors conquered a continent, mm-hmm. pushing across death-laden plains. So the novel opens with this, this acknowledgement of lineage. Mm-hmm. To everything there's a season, these kind of natural cycles. There is, is there not a kind of mooring post in the idea of lineage? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You come from an ancestry and you are part of a chain. You are you are a link in a chain. Yeah. You will die, but in a way you will live on. Yeah. Maybe one reason why David is having such a hard time admitting to himself that he's gay is because he's wondering what that will do to the sense of continuity. Yeah. You know, the sense of lineage. Kind of having to sacrifice that continuity. Right. You know, uh, like other parents who are not able to have children. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So maybe David is telling the absolute truth about himself when he says he wants children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem genuine. Giovanni commits a murder and is sentenced to death by guillotine. Um, and the very last couple pages of this book are David's attempt to imagine Giovanni's very last moments. I'll read kind of scattered bits. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Giovanni's face swings before me like an unex- like an unexpected lantern on a dark, dark night. Love that image. It's beautiful, yeah. His eyes, his eyes, they glow like a tiger's eyes. They stare straight out, watching the approach of his last enemy. The hair of his flesh stands up. Now they approach. Now the key turns in the lock. Now they have him. He cries out once. They look at him from far away. They pull him to the door of his cell. The corridor stretches before him like the graveyard of his past. The prison spins around him. I see his legs buckle, his thighs jelly. He is sweating, or he is dry. They drag him, or he walks. Their grip is terrible. His arms are not his own anymore. Down the long corridor, down those metal stairs, into the heart of the prison, and out of it, into the office of the priest, he kneels, a candle burns. The virgin watches him. Mary, blessed mother of God. I find it very interesting that religion comes it's very it's a palpable force at the end of this book. Mm. My own hands are clammy, my body is dull and white and dry. I see it in the mirror out of the corner of my eye. The priest gently lifts the cross away, then they lift Giovanni. The journey begins, they move off toward another door. He moans. He wants to spit, but his mouth is dry. That door is the gateway he has sought so long out of this dirty world, this dirty body. And then in italics, as if perhaps it's David thinking this to himself, we get this. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I long to make this prophecy come true. That's what he says about this Bible verse. 
The journey to the grave is already begun. The journey to corruption is always already half over. Yet the key to my salvation, which cannot save my body, is hidden in my flesh. It's a very cryptic line. Then the door is before him. There is darkness all around him. There is silence in him. Then the door opens and he stands alone, the whole world falling away from him. And the brief corner of the sky seems to be shrieking, though he does not hear a sound. Then the earth tilts. He is thrown forward on his face in darkness, and his journey begins. Which is such a horrible and beautiful description of this last second of life, death by guillotine. Oh, I know. The whole world falling away from him, and the brief corner of the sky seems to be shrieking. Then the earth tilts. He is thrown forward on his face in darkness, and his journey begins. It's a really, really horrifying, and like you said, beautiful abstract description of a beheading you know what i mean the sense of falling forward he falls on his face right. and and the journey begins as so is so strange <laughs> it's almost as if finally the head separated from the body finally there's a it's almost like a relief that's what giovanni himself says about it when david imagines this moment, that door is the gateway he has sought so long out of this dirty world, this dirty body. He's remembering something Giovanni has said about he doesn't want to live anymore. Right. It's interesting that that's the way he is killed, don't you think? The the mind separated from the body in a way? This dirty body. You know, there's something about the body that these characters find must relate somehow to the idea of original sin, you know? Mm. What does David mean when he says, Yet the key to my salvation, which cannot save my body, is hidden in in my flesh. To me, that's the most cryptic sentence in the book. Yet the key to my salvation, which cannot save my body, is hidden in my flesh. I don't know if he's saying that it's passion and romantic love that is one's salvation in life and not giving up those things. It could be. Like, it won't stop you from dying, so it can't save the body. Exactly. But you need flesh... You know, lust is, I hate these stupid assertions that lust is the opposite of love or a corruption of love or a negative version of love, you know? Yeah. You know, they're kind of twins. They they exist as versions, necessary versions of each other. I mean, we wouldn't want to live in a world without lust, passion, love. Yeah. It, it is something that could save him in the sense that it could give purpose to his life. Mm-hmm. If only he lived in a society that let him do such a thing. Yes, yeah. What do you make of this very last image? So he's been sent a a letter by Jacques in a blue envelope that Mm. announces the time of Giovanni's execution. This is the very last paragraph of the book. At last I step out into the morning and I lock the door behind me. I cross the road and drop the keys into the old lady's mailbox. And I look up the road where a few people stand, men and women waiting for the morning bus. They are very vivid beneath the awakening sky, and the horizon beyond them is beginning to flame. The morning weighs on my shoulders with the dreadful weight of hope, and I take the blue envelope which Jacques has sent me and tear it slowly into many pieces, watching them dance in the wind, watching the wind carry them away. Yet, as I turn and begin walking toward the waiting people, the wind blows some of them back on me. Extremely specific and evocative image. What is what, what is evoked for you as a reader by this image of bits, some bits of this envelope blown back on him? I mean, it's not just any envelope, you know? I think it's just another way of saying that there are things we can exercise control over, but only Mm. 
to a certain degree. Well, explain. Some things we push away from us or separate ourselves from, they will come right. back to us, blown back to us by the wind, something out of our control. Yeah, we don't choose who we love. Exactly. You can try to deny this or push it away, you know, but it's... It's like a, yeah. Like, it's a force of nature. It's like the weather, you know, it's not it's not in your control. But also the memory of Giovanni, like he, he might... It, right, that too. I like what you're saying, but it, it could also just be like this is an experience and a memory and a person that will stick, literally stick with him forever. A horrible scar, you know, is, is an envelope that contains the time of his execution. So it's not a, it's not a love letter, you know? Mm. It's kind of horrible trauma mm. that he'll have to carry. And it's also interesting that he sees Giovanni and himself there at the end. He's looking in the mirror, right? Mm. and begins to see Giovanni and imagines everything. I love that back and forth. I mean, it becomes so kind of almost a biblical and apocalyptic, and it's really gorgeous. I mean, it's, for me, that's when the prose of the novel becomes exceptionally great. Yeah. I do also love the part where where David talks, imagines how the murder really did occur, because that sort of... Um, redeems Giovanni a little bit. Yeah, it's it's not quite in self-defense, but it is the result of being... Taken advantage of terribly. Right. You can see why his publishers didn't want him to publish this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, the lesson for us all in there, you know, like, write the book that you have to write, not the book that society will accept. Mm. I mean, I think his agent literally said, you should burn this. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Because... You know, his first book, Go Tell It on the Mountain, won all this acclaim for depicting, you know, the black experience in Harlem. Mm. And here he is talk tackling a totally different subject, one that I think his publishers thought would alienate that audience that he had just acquired mm -hmm. and said, you should burn this. <laughs> well, what happened? Well, yeah. He published it in England. Okay. And then, you know, the world didn't end. So the American publishers thought, okay, we could... <laughs> It's safe, or I mean, not safe, but it's like, okay, we're all still alive. Okay. There weren't mass riots. We'll publish it here too, kind of thing, I guess. It was published in England first. Mm. And in the Paris Review interview, Baldwin says, like, I couldn't, some people were mad that there are no black characters in this book. He, and he says in that interview, I couldn't, you'd have to look it up for the exact quote, but he says he needed to come to terms with this aspect of himself, his sexuality, and he couldn't... It was beyond him to tackle both race and sexuality in one book. Mm, yeah, that sounds. They like each kind of needed. Need, yeah, they each kind of needed their own book. So interesting. I don't know. For, the, for me, the lesson is stubbornness. Like st you write the book that you need to write, and you let it. F maybe it won't find a place in the world right away. Maybe people will hate it. Maybe smart people will advise you against it. But you know, throughout history, we see geniuses stubbornly keeping a grip on their own vision mm -hmm. and not giving the world, not giving the market just what the market wants. One of the big things I take from this book is that people are various. Does the book answer this question, what is a man? People are various, right? Yeah, maybe that's the answer. People contain multitudes. <laughs> no, the book doesn't seem to celebrate this, though. I mean, there's no positive... Not celebrate, no. That's Giovanni's dead. David seems more or less 
you know, hell has left him. He has and has found out that he's gay. He has to go back and maybe tell his dad. Maybe he won't have the guts to tell his dad that he's gay. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be good for him in America in the fifties being a gay person. It's, I don't. I don't know if the book is like, yeah, we're all various. We contain multitudes. Celebrate myself. No, it's I don't quite, think it's. Although I don't it's think that's the tone. It's interesting that you bring up Whitman. The epigraph for this book is from Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass. I am the man I suffered. I was there. I read this book as a kind of elegy. It's quite elegiac. It's a sad, sad book. It is. Although, I mean, you say, like, how do you then explain this very last bit? The morning weighs on my shoulders with the dreadful Mm. weight of hope. What is this hope? What is the source of hope? I remember reading that and thinking, like, what could possibly... What hopeful thing could be on the horizon for him? But then I wonder if that's just another testament to the human spirit, even in the worst could situations. It could his, be. Yeah. I mean, his lover literally was beheaded. And still there's that terrible weight of hope that just insists on being. It could be, I like that. It could also maybe one other ingredient could be self-knowledge. Perhaps by the end of this book, David now is willing to admit to himself that he's gay. And that is something like... Self-knowledge yeah. is extremely important. We talked about this, you know. That's a good point. It's it's not nothing. It is. It, I think it is important enough to base some hope on. That's right. Self-knowledge. Right. He has been dishonest throughout the whole book, and now he's there's finally some like self-awareness slash honesty towards himself. Mm-hmm. He's willing to admit to himself that he's gay. Right. And that would feel like hope. It's immense. It could be an immense source of hope. Like yeah. lying to yourself is the is the worst form of lying, mm-hmm. arguably. Right. So once you because you're not never fooled. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So once you dispense with that, then I imagine a burden would be lifted. Today's writing prompt is inspired directly by that moment on one of the first pages of this book in which David, the narrator, announces that the main struggle is to say yes to life. As I said in that chat with Claire, I think such a clear announcement of the protagonist's conflict on the grandest scale really helps to focus and concentrate everything that comes next in the novel. So based on this move that Baldwin makes, I think it would be interesting to try announcing on the first few pages of your piece of fiction what exactly the protagonist thinks is the main struggle of life. Your protagonist is a different person from David, of course, and so his or her struggle will be different. But what would it do to your story if you had him or her simply announce in a sentence that went something like this, the main struggle is dot dot dot, and to just simply say it outright. This would help focus the reader's attention, and it could help focus your attention as a writer and make sure that the obstacles that your protagonist is trying to overcome are clear in your own mind and are clear to the reader as well. Today's poem of the day is by James Baldwin. Either it has no title or its title is untitled. Lord, when you send the rain, think about it, please, a little. Do not get carried away by the sound of falling water the marvelous light on the falling water. I am beneath that water. It falls with great force, and the light blinds me to the light.
That's it for now. I hope you've all had a great holiday break and that you'll keep reading, keep writing, and never forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>